All right, so we're going to start with the first sentence of Hebrews. Seems like a good place to start. And this is a powerful and compelling first sentence. And so it got me thinking about famous first sentences. Here's just a few. Let's see if you can tell me where they come from in literature or in history. First, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and prejudice. I knew my English, my English majors here knew that one. Pride and prejudice, that's right. Here's another, another literary one. Happy families are all alike. Unhappy families are all unhappy in their own way. <laughs> Anybody know where that one's from? Anna Karenina, very good. Uh, Leo Tolstoy. And I'll let you just chew on the sentiment there for a little while. <clears throat> Here's one we all know. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal. Gettysburg Address. Gettysburg Address. Anybody have to remember or memorize the Gettysburg Address when they were in school? Part of it. A few of you? I, I don't know that they do it anymore, um, but that certainly used to be a thing. What a beautiful first sentence, too. And actually, I want to think more about that in, in a second, but let me go to this last one. This is my favorite book in all the world, though I have never read it. You might know that one? The Princess Bride. Oh. The Princess Bride. Oh, <laughs> uh, but notice, with, if we go back to that Gettysburg Address, notice all that Lincoln does with that first sentence. He's essentially laid out his whole speech, which is not a long speech in, in itself, but he's laid it all out just in that one line, hasn't he? He has already anticipated what his theme is going to be, where he is going with it. It's a kind of overture, like a musical score, where he's bringing this all out straight away in order to draw you in before he's finally going to hammer his point home. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, starts in a similar way. And I mentioned this last week, but it bears repeating, and we'll come back to it again and again. Really, Hebrews is best understood not as a, a book, nor even as a letter, as the way we understand the other epistles or letters of the New Testament. But it's really a sermon. This was something that would have started as an oration, as an oral speaking event. So, of course, as a preacher, I really love this book. It's great. <laughs> But there's things that we'll notice along the way that are more distinct for a sermon, for a, a spoken word, than for an epistle, for a written word. Of course, it got written down and handed on, and so it has those written features as well. But I think it's important for us to recognize that this is not just a book or even a letter. This is a sermon. And this first sentence that we're going to dig into says a whole lot. I mean, think about all the things that a good first sentence can accomplish. That's what we're going to bring to bear when we go into Hebrews chapter 1. And as is often the case in our um, English translations, in Greek, we've got one sentence here, one run-on sentence. I know, I'm sorry, Janet. It's a run-on sentence. It is what it is. Um, ain't nothing we can do about it. Um, <clears throat> but uh, in English, it breaks it up. But this is one long sentence in the original Greek. So let's, let me just read all of these first four verses to you. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. All right, before we dig in verse by verse, what's a word or a phrase that comes to mind to kind of summarize just this first sentence or few sentences here? Is there anything that stands out to you say that you say this is what this first little bit is about or what we can expect? Okay. Oh, I like that. Gospel in a nutshell. That's very good. So it kind of summarizes a lot of the good news right here just in a, a few verses. Anything else that kind of comes to mind or things that stand out to you? Or maybe just a word from those verses that stands out? Clarification. Okay, clarification. Yeah. Clarification of? Don't want to have any mis misunderstandings here. Gotcha. Yeah. Don't want to have any misunderstandings. We're going to lay it all out for you. Another word that, that stands out to me is the word superior, the word superior. Um, it would be a great name for a large lake as well, I was thinking. Um, so the superiority 
<coughs> Jesus, I think would be a, a good way of, of thinking about this. But we're going to walk this through part by part. And I doubt that as we go through this sermon of Hebrews, that we're going to go through all of it in quite this detail. Perhaps we will. But especially these first few verses really reward some very close attention. So that's what we're going to do here. We're going to start with verses 1 through 2a. This is kind of the first clause or the first thought. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. For uh, some of you who've grown up on the liturgy, those words are very familiar, aren't they? Uh, they're from the order of Matins, I believe. And many in various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Even in English translation, it just rolls off the tongue, right? Like as a preacher, I'm like, it's pretty good. It's a good, that's a good start. I like it. And the big point as we get started is that the author of Hebrews, the preacher, is going to talk about the God who speaks. So number one on your handout, under where it says the God who speaks. The preacher's first sentence wastes no time with formalities. This is one of the indications that it's not your traditional epistle. Notice just to give two examples from other epistles, other letters from the New Testament. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Or again, 1 Thessalonians 1.1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. What do you notice in those two and in other epistles in the New Testament? What is there typically involved in that opening of a, an epistle, the first sentence of one of these letters? What do you usually have? You have a greeting. Who's it from? Who's it to? There's some kind of formalities that are there. And they're not mere formalities. I mean, we can look at those other letters and how much theology Paul manages to pack into what would otherwise just be kind of a, a, a normal um, part of a perfunctory piece of an epistle. But what we have here in Hebrews is there, it just, he comes right at you. He's throwing heat right out of the gate, right? There's no, to the Hebrews or to the, the Christians who are at Rome, which is where they, they probably were at, instead it's just right away, long ago, in many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's how I like to start a sermon too, right? I like to just, let's just get after it right away, right? That's what he's doing here, and he's introducing us to this theme. So what's his big theme out of the gate? Number two on your handout, that God is the speaker in the story of the world, which has two principal chapters. God is the speaker in the story of the world, which has two principal chapters. We ought not take this for granted, that God is the speaker here that we have a God who speaks. There's other religions that believe that there is a God, that there's a creator of all things, but they don't regard him as one who would want to have anything to do with us, right? He's just, or he or she or it, is just some inert prime mover, is how the, the ancient Greeks would have put it. But what you and I have is what one of my teachers called a chatty God. <laughs> we have a chatty God. We have a God who's, who, who's talking, a God of conversation and community who wants to reveal himself to his people, who wants to engage us in conversation. And of course, the conversation is not just one-sided, right? It's God speaking and us responding in prayer and praise and thanksgiving, like we said in the children's message today. So we have a God who speaks. And what does he speak when he speaks? He speaks his story into being. It's the story of the world, right? <coughs> what we think of as history. Somebody pointed this out to me once. Anne's got my whiteboard, otherwise I'd put it. But it's his story. Just blew my mind. His story? His, like his story? Okay. I think it's fascinating. I think it's just a, a coincidence of the way that the word has come together. But all history is his story. It's God's story being unfolded through time and in creation. And it's a story that we learn right away in Hebrews that has two chapters. If we can just put it, paint with the broadest possible strokes or write with the biggest possible letters or something like that. Two chapters. So at the top of page two, if you're new to my Bible studies, I love tables. Okay? <clears throat> Any opportunity to have a good table in there, I'm for it. Second, of course, to my favorite kind of diagram, which as you all know is the Venn diagram. Okay? Don't have any Venn diagrams today, but when we do, it'll be great. 
a table here. So just look at first chapter, last chapter. Uh, They differ as regards their time frame. And this is, again, just broadly put by the preacher here. In the the first chapter, when did that happen? Long ago. (laughs) That was a long time ago. Long ago. But what about this last chapter? In these last days. In these last days. That's a pregnant phrase. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Okay, then as regards the manner. The first chapter, how how did God speak to us in the first chapter? Partially and variously. In different forms and in different fashions is how one translation puts it. At many times and in many ways. The idea is this. First of all, that first part, which the ESV translates at many times, it's not a very good translation. The idea is more that God did it in these different parts. So that in Old Testament times or long ago, you never got the full story, right? You'd get a glimpse here and there. You'd get Samuel, the the little boy Samuel, hearing Uh, Yeah, here I am, Lord. Speak, your servant listens. He has just a a little bit to say. You'd get these little fragments, as it were. And he did it in various ways. Think of your Old Testament. What are some of the ways that God communicated to his people? There's all sorts of different ways. What are some of the ways? Burning bush. Burning bush. How else? The rock. A a rock, yeah. A donkey. A donkey. That's one of my favorites. Oh, Okay, bear with me, but this was one of Martin Luther's prayers before he got into the pulpit. Lord, if you could speak through an ass, you can speak through me. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say your pastor still prays that, okay? It's of great comfort to me. Yeah, how else? There's other ways, too. Through the prophets. Through the prophets, especially. We'll, we'll get to that, through right? Through creation. Through creation, that's right. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. In dreams, in visions... In all sorts of different ways, in many times and in various ways, God spoke to his people of old, but most especially by means of the prophets, by means of the prophets. So those are the, the messengers, his prophets, not just the ones who have written books that have names after them in the Old Testament, but also um, guys like Elijah and Elisha, right? These are prophets of God, his mouthpieces, the ones who would be his messengers proclaiming his message. But in this last chapter now, who is the messenger? It's his son. It's his son. He spoke to us in many and various ways by the prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his son. Definitively, conclusively. Oh, and uh, that's, I skipped that with the, the manner in this last chapter. It's, it's fully and definitively that now, if you want to look for the revelation of our Lord, it's not to say that he can't or doesn't still communicate to us through creation, even through dreams and visions, and not as often through donkeys, but perhaps. Um, but that if you really want the, the straight dope, you might say, of where God stands and what he thinks and how he's communicated to us, we need to look to and listen to his son. Who in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, how is Jesus referred to? The, the word. word. In the beginning, the word became flesh. So Jesus himself is the embodiment of the communication of God. This is why St. Augustine can say that we, we have the whole Trinity revealed, albeit in subtle or unclear ways, there in the first three verses of Genesis. Because what happens in the first three verses of Genesis? In the beginning, God, okay, there's the Father, created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, let there be light. So you have the Father, God, you have the Spirit, and then you have the Word that God created through his Son. More on that momentarily. All three persons of the Trinity already represented at the very beginning of creation. Jesus is the Word, the definitive communication of the Father. And the audience, in that first chapter, the audience simply says was our fathers. Okay, That's another way of saying, uh, biblically, our ancestors, right? The ones who, who came before us. But now, who's he speaking to? Speaking to us, speaking to all of us, speaking to you and to me, and importantly, um, for the New Testament especially, to all people, right? Jew and Gentile alike. God's now no longer uh, just addressing specifically his chosen people, but now all people are chosen in Christ. So he's addressing all of us, all of us. All right, any questions about that, those two chapters or the ways that God is speaking them or, or comments about it. Yeah, Hans. Well, you alluded that um, this wasn't 
written by someone we know. As far as we know, we don't know who wrote it, yes, and, or, and, or preached it, yeah. And, and with that, you have, well, if it's a general one done by a committee or, a, <laughs> or whatever. Is that why it's so long? Because it was written by committee? Probably, <laughs> yeah. But it's like that's when they're greeting and it was to everyone. Right. Okay, uh, it could be. So Hans's point is that we don't know who this was written by. So if, if it was written as a more general sort of thing, that might be why it doesn't have one name appended to it and, and more generally. Could be. But this, uh, the marks of how well it's crafted, again, if you guys have ever participated in some sort of committee, it tend, you put something together, it's kind of piecemeal, right? You're all just kind of packing stuff in there. This is the, the marks of one particular author speaker, I think, for sure, yeah. Any other reflections or questions or comments about these, the two chapters here, God's story? All right, so we are living in the last chapter. We are living in the last chapter. And um, so number three on your handout, Christians are even now living in the last chapter. Now, why is this significant to point out? Um, I don't want to get into this too deep, but there's uh, another strain of Christianity that's become especially popular in the last half century or so, known as dispensationalism. You ever heard of this? Dispensationalism. Um, this is uh, the... Theology that undergirds especially the Left Behind series, the famous Left Behind series, and often goes along, although I don't think necessarily, but often goes along with the kind of rapture theology, a view of the end times. According to this dispensationalism, there's these seven different dispensations, that there's seven different chapters, and in each of these chapters, God treats his people differently, he acts differently, there's different things going on. And that the final chapter um, yet to come is the restoration of the nation of Israel as God originally had it to be. There's issues with the, the dispensational theology, and I can't get into all of that right now, but suffice it to say, when we talk about this first chapter, second chapter, if you want to use that word dispensations, there's really two dispensations, biblically speaking. It's first chapter, second chapter. Old Testament, New Testament, right? And that now, y'all, we are living in the end times. I don't mean that to say as some kind of like, provocative kind of thing. Guys, we're living in the end times because of Putin or because of something like that. Um, we're living in the end times because Jesus is risen and ascended. So biblically speaking, the end times started with the ascension and enthronement of Jesus and continues until our Lord returns. Oh, and it's perfect timing with my whiteboard because I, I want to draw another one of my paper diagrams. Oh, let's hear from my helper. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, does this marker work, on? Yeah. Uh, the, the purple, what was the purple tablets that, wait. <laughs> is, is, is Let the record show. <laughs> okay, there we go. Um, I've drawn this diagram before, but it's, it bears repeating. The kind of uh, biblical time horizon, they would speak, in the Old Testament, they would talk of, this age, okay? This age. Um, the, the Hebrew term was the olam hazeh, the age, the this one, okay? And the understanding is that one day, the Messiah was going to come, and that he was going to usher in the age to come, okay? The olam haba, okay? So it was this sense that there's going to be these two ages. There's this age and there's the age to come. Now what happens with the coming of Jesus, this happens, but there's another wrinkle to it. So what happens is that we still have this age continues. And the age to come is still there. So you have Jesus' um, resurrection. okay, And then at the end is his return. okay, The second coming. So that right now, we live in what is sometimes called, oh wait, no, here we go. The overlap of the ages. There, I, I managed to get a Venn diagram. Okay? Here's where we live, right? There's the age to, age to uh, say, this age, age to come, which we would variably think of as, like we say in the creed, the life of the world to come. The word there for world is the Greek word ion, which is better translated to age, the life of the age to come. And we live right here in this overlap where we still are feeling the effects of this 
present evil age, the, the age of, of sin and death and sorrow and despair and entropy and everything else. Um, but we also live in the age to come. And Hebrews will bring this out as well, that we have tasted already, that um, we've, we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've tasted the age to come already through the gift of the Spirit, the forgiveness we have in Christ, and the promise of eternal life. Okay, just threw a lot at you there. Questions or clarifications, that kind of makes sense? When it talks about how we live in these last days then, he's, he's doing a lot with that phrase, saying we live in the end times. The only thing that remains is for Jesus to come back. Now, there's other things that Revelation talks about, talks about how right before the time comes, things are going to get especially bad. And maybe this is what people are, are kind of talking about when they say, oh, well, maybe we're in the tribulation or whatever. It could be, but we don't know, right? God's not going to give out some heavenly PSA. Oh, just to let you know, you know, here we are, we're flying at 30,000 feet, and uh, we're going to be hitting some rough air here, rough air. Very rough. Side note, when did... Uh, it become rough air rather than turbulence. Does anybody know? Okay. I've just noticed that the last couple of years. It's not turbulence anymore. It's rough air. But we might be in the rough air right now. We could be in the tribulations. Can't say, right? I mean, every generation assumes that they are. Like, it couldn't get any worse than this. And people during the bubonic plague are like, really? You want let's, to, let's trade stories. Um, but uh, suffice it to say, what we're waiting for is just the coming of Jesus, and we live in that overlap. All right. And uh, to give a couple other verses along these lines, 1 Corinthians 10. These things happened to them, the people of old, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. On whom the end of the ages has come. The word end there is telos, or goal, the fulfillment, the culmination of the ages has come and is now. It's perfect tense. We we exist in it, in that overlap. And along a little bit different lines, but related, in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus is that last word of the Lord. He is the definitive speech act of the creator God. So the bottom line for these first verse, verse and a half, is that the God of all creation speaks and he speaks to you and me. It's a big deal. It's a delightful thing that ought to constantly drive us to our knees that God actually wants to hear from us. It's wild. All right. Pause there briefly for questions or reflections so far. All right. When you think of something later, raise your hand at any point. Okay. So then we pivot here as he says, okay, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Now the preacher is going to talk more about this son and his qualifications. So verses 2b and 2c. Um, whom he has appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. Okay, so on the, on the Lord's resume, as it were, for why, why are you qualified to be the definitive last word from the God of the universe? Well, let me mention two things in particular since Jesus is talking now. Uh, Jesus is qualified to be God's mouthpiece because he is the appointed heir of all things. So the first thing he says, the appointed heir of all things. This echoes then harkens back to Psalm 2, which will come up in a significant way as uh, we go forward in this chapter. But Psalm 2 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus is the appointed heir. He's the executor of the father's estate, right? He is the one in whom all, the, all this authority has been entrusted. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 28, we call the Great Commission, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. He is the one who has been appointed the heir of all things. That's the first reason that he's qualified for this job, if you will, as the last word of the Father speaking. The second qualification, the reason he's qualified to be God's mouthpiece, is because he is the foreman of all creation, through whom also he created the world. John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. 
could look at 1 Corinthians 8, Colossians 1. This shows up again and again and again. But Jesus is the agent of God's creative work. He created through his word, the speaking God. And he is still superintending the, the creation. And actually, there's a lovely word or way of, of looking at this here. It says, um, he has appointed him as the heir of all things, through whom he made the world. He is the one who is, so to speak, um, carrying God's world. Again, sometimes people have this idea that God is just some distant landlord, right? He's the absentee landlord of the universe. And he made it, or sometimes uh, an analogy will be given that he's like a watchmaker. And he wound it up at the beginning, and then he just let it go. And when things get really bad, you can kind of call him up. He's sort of like your butler, like, oh, excuse me, God. Yeah, we, uh, we need a little bit more. Uh, we need some more coffee over here. Oh, yeah, right. I'll be right down on that. Um, but in point of fact, he is with us at all times, in all places. In Acts 17, it says he's the one in whom we live and move and have our being. So he's not distant. He's not absentee. But he's right here with us carrying on, so to speak, the family business of the Father's creation. Jesus is still bringing that to pass. And that's why, then, he is qualified to be the last word of the Father, the one who gives that definitive communication. All right. Thoughts or, or questions about that? Yeah, go ahead. Well, when I put the thought of what an error is in our community. Of what a what is? An error. An error. Uh-huh. H-E-I-R. Yep. H-E-I-R that uh, you only get what to inherit once mm. your father is deceased. Oh, uh, good point. Mm -hmm. uh, and is there a difference in Greek, or whatever? That sure, good. It, it's, it's sounding like, you know, is God going to, you know, father going to die? So that yeah, right. That's, oh, that's a really good question. So the way that we customarily, you receive an inheritance is you get an inheritance when your parents die, right? And so what Hans is raising is, Wait, so is this saying that the fa God the Father has to die for Jesus to be the heir of all things? That would be bad news indeed, right? Uh, no, this is certainly not the case. And yes, there are different ways of, of looking at this in terms of um, biblically when it talks about heirs and inheritance. I think it especially has in mind that Old Testament perspective of uh, the people of God when they were heirs, they were coming into the promised land and they received that. So they were heirs not in the sense of um, you know, uh, somebody else had to, had to die, but that they are receiving a promise. And so I think when we look at Jesus as the appointed heir, it's a promise that God has made, and now it's going to be received by and fulfilled and, and ratified by him. That's a, that's, a, that's a good question. That's a, a good way of, of thinking about it. Those are the kind of questions that we want to ask when we're reading the scriptures. Are there other things about inheritance that strike you or why that might be a significant phrase here to talk about how Jesus, Jesus is the heir? Hopefully there's no quabbles within the family about it, right? I don't inheritance. Oh, goodness. But, sorry, I stepped on somebody's toes. He's, he's the son. He's the son, exactly. So that whatever the father has is his. That's exactly right. He's the son. Whatever the father's ha father has is his. And this calls to mind again the, the parable of the prodigal son, right? And how the father, he gives his inheritance to the son. And there is that sense of like, okay, drop dead, dad. I just want the inheritance. Of course, that's not, not Jesus here. And instead, it's all things are mine, like he says to the older son. All things are mine, and therefore all things are yours. And so for Jesus to be the heir of all things means that now in him, you and I, are the heirs of all things. He says that in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul does, that now all things are yours. And um, again, when we think about Jesus as the heir, now those gifts are ours, not by right, but by grace. For him, it's naturally because of who he is. But for us, it's now by grace through, through uh, God's son. All right, so let's, let's get more into who Jesus is and what he has done because Verses 3 and 4 pack a serious punch. Some commentators actually think that um, the preacher here is quoting um, a hymn stanza. There's some marks that make it look kind of like poetry, like it could be a hymn stanza. And so it's sort of like, you know, when I'll do this sometimes in a sermon, like if I um, suddenly start a line saying, All hail the power of Jesus' name. 
Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. Guess pretty good, right? <laughs> Side note, did you guys read this thing? It was going around the interwebs, so it must be true. Um, but about the late Queen Elizabeth, that apparently in this conversation she had with the, the court chaplain, um, she said, she expressed that she hoped that Jesus would come before she died. And why specifically? I mean, any of us would like that. She said, because I would love to be able to cast my crown at his feet. Wow. Yeah, right? Cool. Pretty cool. Um, the rest of us were just like, I've got this Burger King one. you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, this could be in verses 3 and 4, a, a hymn stanza that the preacher's picking up on. We can't say for certain. But in any case, it's very poetic, and there's a lot of theology, just like with our best hymns. There's a lot of theology packed in a few phrases. And so there's really four things here. The nature, the work, the position, and the status of Jesus that are set out in these two verses. Nature, work, position, and status. So let's go through this. As pertains to his nature... Jesus is light of light, being of one substance with the Father. Those are words from the Nicene Creed. But guess what? The Nicene Creed got them from the Bible. <laughs> and where does it come from? It comes from, from Hebrews. So it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So first of all, you get this picture of the Son of God is the Son of God's glory. And it's a helpful metaphor, too, because... It doesn't say that Jesus is the moon, because what does the moon do? Where does the, what is the light that the moon shines, moon shines reflects from the sun, right? Like moonshine, you get different light when you have to It reflects. Jesus himself, he, he certainly reflects the light of the Father, but he himself is the radiance of God's glory. This is part of, when we talk about you know, um, critics or skeptics of Christianity will say, well, the New Testament doesn't say the word Trinity anywhere. You Christians just made, made up that idea. So it's certainly true that the word Trinity itself does not show up in the New Testament. It is certainly not true that we just made this idea up. That's why it's such a powerful and potent image, because it, it captures both the unity and the distinctiveness of Father and Son. Right? He is the radiation of the Father's glory. So he, ha he shares that very essence of the Father. At the same time, he's not the Father. He is distinct in some way that we can't fully wrap our minds around, right? But he is light of light, being of one substance with the Father. And the word substance there uh, comes from this Greek word used in, in Hebrews of hypostasis. Hypostasis, from which we get our English word understand. Or is it understand? Yeah, understand. Because to understand is to stand under, see? Thank you. You guys have been great. Um, no. Um, it's this idea of um, the subsistence, the substructure, the foundation, right? What's there at the very essence? And the preacher is saying here that Jesus is of the very um, hypostasis, the very substructure and essence of God. He's not incidental. He's not just some wall hangings or something like that. But Jesus is part of the very essence of God. He's right there, light of light, being of one substance with the Father. We can't put it better than the, the creed already has. Then there's a second image that's used. So you have the, the sun and the, the radiation of the sun's glory, but also that it says the sun is the exact imprint of his nature. This is really cool because here the, the Greek word familiar to us, it's the word character, okay? It says that Jesus was a real character. goes along with my message today in the, the sermon, right? He had, no, um, that when it talks about character here, it has a couple of things in mind. That would think of like the signet ring of a king. Um, it would leave an impression. It would leave a character in the wax, right? This is the exact imprint. Um, this is the, the idea here, that it's a, a perfect reflection of the Father, so that if you have seen Jesus, you have seen God the Father. He is the, the character of God. It's a lovely way of, of putting it, and again, captures the sense that when it comes to Jesus' nature, 
he is of one nature with the Father. He's, he's tied up with the, with the Father. Okay, questions about either of those images or that, that idea? Yeah, Becky, you look like you, there's something you're wrestling with. Well, I, exact imprint is striking. I once heard somebody on a sitcom <laughs> narrow down the Bible. Old Testament was about don't mess with God. New Testament is be nice to people. Yeah. And there's this, like, bad cop, good cop. Right. Like God the Father. Yeah, we watched God the Lego the movie last night. Yeah, I can picture the rotating head. kind of bashes that thought. Like, yes. Like, no, it's. It's one vision yeah. from Genesis to the end. Yes. It's not that God the Father was mean. Yes. And Jesus came. Yeah. That's a gr- that's a great point. Have you guys heard that, or maybe you've even thought it from time to time? Like, okay, Old Testament, mean God. New Testament, nice God. Uh, yeah. This this verse alone explodes that idea that if you want to see what God the Father is like, look to His Son. That we can understand and interpret God. And I mean, any, as we saw with Leviticus last year, you can't read the Old Testament and come away like, no, there's no grace there. It's like, no, everything about what God is trying to do is for the forgiveness of his people. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's important to emphasize the fact that it's not God was so angry with the world that he punished his son so that then he could love the world. Some people will sometimes understand the message of the gospel that way, and that's a, a perversion of the good news. See, No, it flowed, the gospel comes from the overflow of the Father's heart. God loved the world so much that he sent his Son in order to reconcile the world to himself. And the Son went not begrudgingly or grousing and saying, well, I guess somebody's got to do it. But instead, the Son from the uh, foundation of the world said, here I am, Father, send me. Send me, right? That this is in the, the very heart of God. I wish that Pastor Newton were here because he would riff on this for five or ten minutes. Um, about the, the missionary heart of God. That God's heart is always in sending out his love and his mercy to the world. So absolutely, Becky, just to underscore that point. It's not that Old Testament mean, New Testament nice. It goes together hand in hand. This is who God is. It's law and gospel. It's long gospel too, right? That God sometimes speaks words of, of judgment and he speaks words that, that summon forth repentance, but theologians call that his alien work. Not this kind of alien. <laughs> but alien in the sense that that's not his true nature. His proper work is gospel. His proper work is forgiveness. That's what he wants to do, right? Just like his parents, like we're not in the business of, oh man, I just can't wait to spank some butts today, right? <laughs> I don't want, sorry. Don't want to get into a debate about corporal punishment too. Uh, but we, what do we always want? We want, the, we want to be reconciled to our kids. We want to be able to show them grace and to, to live in that. How much more the father of all creation, sorry. These are the things that you uh, get when you come to, to Bible study. We'll just we'll cross it out for the recording. <clears throat> a couple more things I want to, to bring out here. Then. As pertains to his work, it says, Jesus carries and cleanses creation. He's the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he upholds the universe. Colossians 1.17 puts this in a, a beautiful way. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the glue that binds all creation. He's the one in whom all things make sense. Psalm 36, with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. See, if we want to be able to make sense of the world and our life in it, We need to look to the radiance of the glory of God. We need to look to Jesus. He is the one who brings forth the true nature of creation. And he has purified us. We could go deep, as we have, into Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. But Hebrews here is already referencing and kind of alluding to that. We'll get into that a lot more in subsequent chapters. But he has purified us. He has cleansed creation and continues to carry us to God the Father. Now, as pertains to his position then, Jesus is enthroned at God's right hand. So it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's really significant because the seated position is the position of authority. It's the one that now he is the one who is reigning. 
He is the one who is in charge. You may have heard this before, that in the ancient world, the teacher would be the one who was seated, and everybody else, all the listeners, would be standing. So I thought we would introduce this at Trinity Lutheran. No. <laughs> Can you imagine? But it, it, it captures that idea of the seated position is the position of authority. So Jesus is seated. And where is he seated? At the right hand of God on high. He is seated at the position of privilege and authority. He's right there on the, the right hand of the Father. This goes along with his ascension. Ephesians 1 brings this out. That God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There's a nice connection there with what we talked about earlier. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. From this position then, where he is at God's right hand, you're like, well, where's God's right hand? St. Louis, of course. As you knew. No. Um, that's a Lutheran joke. Sorry. Um, <laughs> And God's right hand fills all things. It's a way of speaking kind of poetically of how now Jesus, at the right hand of God, is able to inhabit all creation. It's why he's able to be with us here in Arcadia in 20, 2022, just as he could be in you know, the other side of the world at different times in different places. It's why he can be, to put it paradoxically, transcendently imminent. Transcendently imminent at once Far above all things, as it says in Ephesians 1, above every rank and authority, but also, and at the same time, near and present to every one of us. St. Augustine, in his confessions, prayed this way. He said, O Lord, you are higher than my highest and more inward than my innermost self. The reason he can do that is because he is enthroned at the right hand of God. kind of makes you wonder how... Christ looked at his disciples when they were arguing over who's going to sit at the right hand. I know, hand. right? <laughs> yeah, when, they, when the disciples were arguing about who, who can sit at your right hand and, and yeah. at your left. And Jesus is so merciful. Like, he could have just given them a noogie or a wedgie right then and there. I don't know how you do a wedgie in a toga, but he, but he doesn't. He's patient with them. He simply says, listen, it's not, it's not for me to grant, you guys. It belongs to the Father. Yeah, Hans. Um right hand of God, uh, does he have something against the left hand? Ah. I, I know there are a few Speaking left. on behalf of the lefties in the room, thank yes. you, Hans. <laughs> uh, because it's, is it, uh, like in ancient texts, was the right hand just the, the authority over the left? Right. Or? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the place of privilege, it's the place of authority, going back all the way to the Old Testament, to the ancient world, not just to the Jews, but we see it in other cultures as well. Why is that? It's, it's really hard to say. I mean, just thinking probably, probably phenomenologically, a lot more people are right-handed. And as far as I know, that's something that has stood, stood the test of time. And so there's that sense of it's the, the dominant one. Um, but we really don't know. And, I mean, it's never explained in the scriptures. Here's why the right is so important. But it is a recurring theme and pattern, for sure. I mean, there's so many ways. But, yeah, suffice it to say, it is the place of, of privilege and authority. I was, so, just, I was curious if, if God the Father was right-handed. Right. No, right well, obviously he is. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> no. Right is correct. <laughs> I heard that left is right. But, anyway. Um, all right. Then, finally, fourth and, and finally, about Jesus, as pertains to his status, Jesus is superior to all things having become as much superior to angels, and now he's kind of segueing to where it'll go to um, with the rest of the chapter, as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Ooh, so that's a question then. What is the more excellent name? If you know that song, Jesus, name above all names. But I actually don't think Jesus is the name that he has in mind here. The name that is above all other names is what has come to be known as the Tetragrammaton. It's the name that the, the Jews would not even speak, the name Yahweh. Yahweh was the name above all other names. Our, most of our translations don't do us a huge favor here because they simply translate it as Lord. 
So you get your English translation, and you'll notice this in your Old Testaments. Sometimes it'll be Lord with small caps, all caps, small caps, right? And other times it'll be Lord, just regular. And it's confusing, but when you see Lord written with all caps, that's where it's the proper name, Yahweh, okay? This is the, the name that God revealed to himself at the burning bush to Moses, right? I am, or technically he is, right? He said, I am who I am. We say he is who he is. So Yahweh is the third person imperfect of Hebrew uh, verb to be. He is. He is being. He is existence. The one in whom we live and move and have our being. Um, but then there's a, a second word in Hebrew that means Lord, and that's Adonai. Okay? So Adonai simply means Lord. But then sometimes in the Old Testament, it'll address God as Adonai Yahweh. Well, what do you do then? You get Lord, Lord. All right? That doesn't make any sense. And so our translations will translate that as Lord God. And it'll do the God with the lower, lowercase, all uh, small. Okay. Uh, so when it talks about Jesus having the name that is above all other names, it's saying Jesus is Lord. That means that he is king and master and ruler and all the things that we associate with the title Lord. But it also means Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. He is the one who bears and carries that most holy name. Again, if you're talking about Trinitarian theology, you can't get a more straightforward statement of it than this. His is the name that is above all other names. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 2. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Yahweh, right? Yeah, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. That's why the, the fundamental Christian confession of faith, the most basic confession of faith, even before the Apostles' Creed or anything like that, was uh, simply Iesus uh, Kyrios. Jesus Kyrios, which means Jesus is Lord in Greek. Okay? And that's that confession that Jesus is Lord, therefore Caesar's not. It was kind of a, a, a fighting words, a little bit of a polemical thing in the ancient world. But to the Greeks, but then also to the Jews, he was saying Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. That's why, I mean, Christians were getting it from every side, right? So that when all is said and done, Life belongs to the living Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is above all things, seated at the right hand of God. He is the one who upholds all things, in whom they hold together. This is the theme of the whole sermon of Hebrews, that now he's going to unpack this over the next 13 chapters, right? The superiority of the Son. So let Okay, go ahead, Hans. Uh, Yahweh, in, in my book, which has Yahweh written in it. Does it? What translation is it? This is the, New Jer the Jerusalem Bible. The Jerusalem Bible, okay. Uh, <coughs> doesn't have any vowels. Doesn't have any vowels, right. And, uh, yeah, so Hebrew, as it, was, as it was written, did not have vowels. It was simply Y-H-W-H. Uh, and in Hebrew, it was only later scribes that came along and added the vowels in. And so in Hebrew, it's like uh, these, you get these little dots and stuff underneath it. doesn't mean that they didn't have vowels as it was spoken, uh, but it was very much an orally transmitted culture. And so it was later on, they said, you know what, maybe someday people won't, be, won't know how to pronounce these things. So we better stick the vowels in there. But, so that's how we, we believe how it would have been pronounced. Another side note. Sorry, um, but the Jehovah is the same name. Right. It's a different way of people pronouncing it. So instead of Yahweh, you get Yahovah. It's different vowels that have been put in there. And you know, a J instead of a Y. The Hebrew letter Yod can be kind of translated either, either way. All right, let's land the plane and, and close here with what difference does it make? Two things I want to point out. One. Because Jesus has redeemed and purified all things, everything we do in faith is pleasing to God and has eternal worth. Not everything we do, we're still sinners, but everything we do in faith, now when we, insofar as we act in faith and are moved by the Spirit, it's pleasing to God. 
To the pure, all things are pure, it says in Titus 1.15. That's an incredible statement. But it's because God has cleansed and purified you so that now, leading forth lives of faith that flow from pure hearts, whether you are a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker, you're doing good work. It's a big theme of the Reformation, (laughs) that sense of vocation. Um, But that as we lead our lives in faith, it's pleasing to God. And I love this quote from Tish Warren in her book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary. She says, Christ's ordinary years are part of our redemption story. Because of the incarnation and those long, unrecorded years of Jesus' life, our small, normal lives matter. If Christ was a carpenter, all of us who are in Christ find that our work is sanctified and made holy. If Christ spent time in obscurity, then there's infinite worth found in obscurity. If Christ spent most of his life in quotidian ways, then all of life is brought under his lordship. There's no task too small or too routine to reflect God's glory and worth. Jesus is like that sponge that has absorbed all of life, and now it's purified in him, right? He has purified it so that now when we live by faith in him, our our meager efforts have been made pure. And what's impure, he whittles away. That chaff will not ultimately withstand the, the test of time. But what will stand is all the good that he has worked in us through the power of the Spirit and by faith. And then secondly, we finally know our Father. And, uh, you know, what a thing that we truly know our Father. Some, some of you grew up without fathers or you didn't know your dad. And even for those who do, there's always that sense in which your dad is kind of a mystery to you. <laughs> and do you, do you truly, truly know him? We know the Father's heart because Jesus has made it known for us. It says in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. If we want to know the fatherly heart of God, look no further than our Lord Jesus, who has made it known to you and to me. It's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful first sentence. We unpacked a lot just in those few verses. Thank you for joining us today. Hope you'll continue with us next week as we keep going through chapter one of the book of Hebrews. God be with you. We're going to go through the whole book.